Hello, uh, Mafra friends. Uh, good to be back with you. And uh, we're continuing our series today in 1 John. We're up to 1 John chapter 4, which I'll read in just a moment. But before we do that, let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your word of truth, which uh, is light and life to us. We pray that you would speak to us today about your great love for us in your Son uh, and your great gift to us of your Holy Spirit, who uh, guides us into the truth of your Son. We pray that you would keep us from error. We pray that you would uh, help us to continue in these truths that we've come to believe uh, and, and stay uh, pressing on in them until, um, until the very end, until you call us home or in, until the Lord Jesus returns, whichever of those is first. So we pray that you would help us to be people committed to truth and love and obedience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, John uh, is this book about uh, truth and love and obedience. John wants to point out who is and who is not a believer, who is a member of God's family in Christ. By and large, Christians are nice people, at least they ought to be. Um, the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if they're the product of the Spirit working in our lives, then that should make us pleasant people. It should make us nice people. Um, we've got to be careful, though, that we don't mistake niceness for genuineness. Uh, a genuine person should manifest those things and should make them nice. But um, we've got to be careful that we don't look at people and say, oh, they're loving, they're kind, therefore they must be Christians. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit are the, the outcomes of knowing God in Christ. Uh, but we've also got to be cautious that our desire to be seen as nice doesn't override our duty to be discerning. So we might want other people to think of us as nice and so therefore we won't do anything that would offend or, or cause them um, to think differently of us. Nice Christians might misunderstand what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 7 verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Don Carson, the uh, famous American Bible scholar, said some years ago that he thinks judge not that you be not judged. Matthew 7, 1 is probably the most famous Bible verse in the world now. It used to be John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But this judge not that you be not judged is one that people come up with a fair bit. But uh, Christians who think that that's the end of the matter, judge not that you be not judged, uh, forget that only a very few verses later in chapter 7, of Matthew verses 15 to 16, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. They, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, by the outcome of the way of their life. Uh, you'll recognize false prophets. So Jesus warned about pro false prophets, not just there, but later on in Matthew 24. And his followers, as they wrote the New Testament or as they preached, uh, very often warned their audiences that false prophets would come. And so in 1 John, we've seen already several times that the threat to the church that John is addressing as he writes to them is of false teachers or false prophets, people that John calls antichrists, people who have left the true church, which was established by John the Apostle. John was an eyewitness. He's established this church uh, to follow on in the truth that he's taught them, that he was taught by Jesus. And so chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, which we've already looked at, bears repeating. John says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so he gives us three tests to work out who is of us, who is of the, the true church, the, 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 the church left behind by Jesus. And those three interdependent tests of truth, which is to me, means that you believe what the apostles taught and what they've taught since the beginning. There's the obedience test. You do what Jesus requires or commands. And there's the love test, which is simply loving one another. So let's see how these tests come out in John chapter, 1 John chapter 4. Read from verse 1. 1 John 4 at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John begins with a command, uh, and that's don't believe every spirit. But then he goes on and he says you need to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Then he goes on and explains why this needs to be. He says many false prophets have gone out into the world. So false prophets is another way of saying these antichrists. Now what does it mean to test the spirits? It means you make a critical examination of the content of any teaching that you hear. You want to work out whether it's genuine. You, you need to examine it. Uh, so here in, in chapter 4 verse 6, Chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 6, the role of the Spirit is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Now we hear a lot about the work of the Spirit at times and, and sometimes people might have you believe that the main role of the Spirit is to gift uh, God's people for, for, for ministry. But Jesus, when he talks about the ministry of the Spirit, says his chief role will be to bring glory to Jesus himself. Uh, as, that's what Jesus teaches in chapter 16 of John. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, meaning to the apostles. And the apostles take what Jesus has given them by the Spirit and they pass it on to their readers and to their hearers. So this is, we could sum this up and say that what we need to do is to keep our spiritual antennae up all the time. Uh, there, are, um, there, there are times when we, we are confronted with blatant error and there's other times when that error will be perhaps a little bit more subtle. But we always need to keep our spiritual antennae tuned in to make sure that we are being discerning, that we're testing the things that we hear. So the test that John gives us is in verses 2 to 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now he's in the world already. So there's a positive test and a negative test. Uh, is Jesus the Christ and has he come in the flesh? That's the, that's the test. Um, so every spirit that confesses that is a good spirit, or the spirit, 
Uh, any that, can, that deny that Jesus is a living human being, uh, a real flesh and blood human, uh, that's not something from the Spirit of God. Now, to confess that means to make public announce, a public acknowledgement of it. Uh, to confess means to, to agree with the truthfulness of a proposition or to identify yourself with a particular stance. Um, the Antichrists, these false teachers who have gone out from the church and who continue to have some negative influence on the church, uh, their aim is to deceive people by denying the truth about Jesus Christ, that is, his true humanity. Now, you'll find, I've said this before, but the, the errors about Jesus usually concern his person and his work, who he is and what he came to do. And that's the case in 1 John. Uh, you'll find today that there are Jesus minus people and Jesus plus people. There are people who say, yeah, well, you've heard that about Jesus, but don't worry about salvation because there's nothing to be saved from. They're Jesus minus people. They'll say he was a good teacher, and, but that's, that's all we need to know about him. Live according to the golden rule and all will be well. But there's other people who say, yes, Jesus is the saviour of the world, but what he did isn't quite enough. You'll need to top it up with a few other things besides. So watch out for Jesus minus teaching and Jesus plus teaching. Jesus is completely sufficient to accomplish all that God wants from him and for us. And so verses four to six, John continues. He's commanded, he's explained what the command is about. He's provided the test and now he affirms his readers. Now you'll notice as John goes on, he, he, he keeps cycling back to these, these three tests. He keeps cycling back and, and through quite similar material. He's using the, the power of reiteration, of reminder. It's a bit like the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has many proverbs that, um, that focus on different, uh, uh, different topics, but you'll, you'll see the same topics repeated again and again with subtle variations. And that what, that's what John's doing here. So I don't think, oh, we've heard all this before. No, he's adding a new dimension to it. He's adding to what we've heard before. And so he wants to encourage these people. He wants to affirm them because probably... The fact that these antichrists have left has jolted some of them. It's made them wonder, am I really a believer? Am I someone who, who can expect to inherit eternal life? So John wants to remind them of their true identity and their status. They've become overcomers from God. Now John speaks in ter terms of them and us. So there's us, the people that have remained in the church, the people who have continued in the apostles' teaching, which has been received from the beginning, but them are those who've gone out. And so verse 4, John writes, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Now, have overcome, in other words, the overcoming has already happened. Uh, that word overcome is an important one. Uh, it's a word that John uses repeatedly um, in his letter here, but also certainly in the book of Revelation. It's a, book, it's a word which is translated in various ways, but it means to be victorious or to... Um, uh, to triumph or to conquer. Now, in the book of Revelation, it's the promise that's made to each of the seven churches, to him who overcomes, to him who conquers, I will give. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the word, the world. The word that's used here for overcome in 1 John and in, in Revelation and in Jesus saying there in John 16, uh, it comes from a Greek word that gives us the name Nike. 
And now Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. She was the one that they thanked when they had a military victory. Uh, the manufacturer of sporting wear decided that they would give the word victory, uh, the Greek word for victory, to their shoes, assuming that, you know, well, probably hoping that people would think if they uh, go in a race with uh, Nike shoes on, they might win it, they might overcome. Well, John says to these people, you have overcome them. And then he gives the reason for that, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Well, who is in them? We'll have a look at the end of verse 6. It's the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth is in them, and so they're greater than the spirit that's in the ones who have left. Who's in them? Which spirit is in them? Which spirit do they need to discern? Well, at the end of verse 6, it's the spirit of error, the spirit of untruth. So how do we, or how do they, overcome we overcome in Christ. Christ has overcome the world. And so by faith in him and his indwelling of us in the spirit, we are given the strength to overcome. Now, this is a powerful affirmation. John's saying, you don't need to be scared of these people that have gone out. You have the truth. It's been taught you since the beginning. The spirit will equip you to discern their error. So don't be fearful. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When John writes there that they are from the world and they speak from the world and the world listens to them, that's another characteristic. The world is under God's judgment. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised when false teachers seem to be more appealing to the world that we live in because the world will lap up things that affirm it in its error. And so if Christians depart from the apostolic faith and begin speaking a message which is designed to be more appealing to the world, don't be surprised if that is the, the version of the faith that seems more appealing. Um, have you heard of a man called John Shelby Spong? He was a very famous uh, American Christian, an, an Episcopalian, that is the American branch of the Anglican Church. He rose to become the Anglican Bishop of Newark. Um, I first heard of him because he toured Australia and uh, he was interviewed on the ABC radio. And I remember the very excited announcer um, announcing him before the news break that coming up after the news was Bishop John Shelby Spong from York, New Jersey. She said, he's sure to throw some hand grenades. So he was a notorious liberal theologian. He was a person that had been raised by a believing mother. Uh, but as he went on, he described his Christian faith or his, his, his spiritual life, so to call, as a journey from literalism and conservatism uh, to an expansive view of Christianity. So he came to believe and he wrote lots of books where he advanced his belief and he said that God wasn't a spiritual being outside, but he said he was something deep within us. I'm not sure he would even call it God he. Just God was this force within us, deep within us. Jesus Christ, he said, was the full expression of the presence of God, uh, the God of compassion and selfless love. He says that Jesus was adopted by God as his son. So in other words, Jesus hadn't been there from the beginning. Jesus was a human who was adopted by, son, by, by God as his son. He denied the virgin birth. He denied the miracles of Jesus. He denied the resurrection of Jesus. Well, he came to write books that said that, Christ, that churches would die unless they caught up with the modern program. He said churches need to reflect the uh, changes in society at large. So he wrote lots of books, but three of them were A New Christianity for a New World. 
Another one was called Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. And another one, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. He says, if we don't update the faith, if we don't bring it into line with what the world is thinking, then Christianity will disappear. So his claim was that he was making Christianity more relevant for a new generation who could not believe in the supernatural. It was fascinating that over the course of his life as a bishop of the uh, Diocese of Newark, the membership numbers halved. So in other words, his version of the faith that he said was going to rescue Christianity, what it did was it turned people away. The world's not going to come to church to hear what it already believes. People will be drawn to truth because truth is something that at least some people deeply desire. But truth is truth and it's not our job to depart from it. When we depart from the faith for all, once for all delivered, we've got nothing left but our opinions. He would have been much more courageous if he'd shed his priestly robes and started a new movement and said, it's got nothing to do with Christianity, follow me. But he didn't because he liked the prestige and he liked the fancy buildings and the, uh, the, uh, the income that it brought him, I suppose. But what he was teaching was not Christianity, not even a branch of Christianity, it was heresy. This has been going on for a very long time. John was writing about it then and it will continue to plague the church until Jesus returns. And so the test is to test the spirits, to examine what is being taught. Is it the spirit of the world, the world that Jesus says is under some measure of control of the evil one? Uh, is it the spirit of the world, the spirit of the devil, or is it the spirit of God? Test the spirits, test the truthfulness. Is it what's been taught from the beginning? We read on at verse 7 of chapter 4. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. Now what he's doing is he's going, the, the, the previous bit's been a digression. He's now going back to the love test that he's finished chapter 3 with. So he comes back to the subject of love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for here, fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his he who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we're back to the, the test of love. We've had a, a truth test, test the spirits, but now we're back to the, the test of love, back to a concern, the, the concerns that he's been expressing at the end of chapter 3. So he begins with an exhortation, beloved, let us one another. And then he gives a reason for love is from God. And then he gives a test in the positive. Whoever loves has been born God and knows God. So a person without love for other Christians is someone who is demonstrating that they don't know God. They haven't been born of God. But then the negative test, anyone who does not love God, who, who does not love, does not know God because God is love. So there's a challenge and it's a pretty simple one. Do you love the people in this church? Do they know it? How do you demonstrate it? Because to, to love other believers is to show that you've been born of God, that you're bearing the family likeness. Now, some years ago when I was uh, doing beach mission down at Apollo Bay, uh, we had the evening program going one night. I was lurking around the back of the crowd, just sort of mingling and doing things. These two hippie fellows came up and, uh, and started talking to me. And they said, what are you doing? What, what's going on here? And so I explained it to them. We had a very lengthy chat, over 90 minutes. Fascinating, it was too. Um, but amongst other things, we talked about God and they wanted to know about God. And I said, God is love. And one of the guys grabbed the Bible that I had and he shut it. He said, God is love. He says, well, that's all you need to know. Well, is it? If you were to Google, if you were to put the phrase into a Bible software program or, or Bible gateway on the internet or something, God is, you'll find that God is lots of things. So just a few of them. God is gracious and merciful. God is a strong refuge. God is a righteous judge. God is mighty. In Hebrews 12, 29, the last God is, before you get to 1 John, the last of them before, you know, Hebrews 12, 29 says, God is uh, consuming fire. The, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Deuteronomy 4 there. So God's lots of things. Love is one component of that, but he's also a consuming fire. Now, what does it mean that God is love? Well, it means that God's essential nature is demonstrated in this act of salvation. But that's not all that God is. That the love of God is made manifest in the fact that he sent his son to be the saviour of the world. But we still need to get back to the topic of what is love. Now, those of us who remember the 1960s and so on, the hippie era, there was a lot of... Sing well, love's always been the theme of songs, but the, the hippie idea of love sort of was tied in with, with um, the sexual revolution where uh, love really meant sexual promiscuity. I've been reading a book about one of my favourite bands from those days and um, the leader of that band uh, had a, um, a motto. He said, I want to give love wherever I can and take it wherever I find it. And boiled down, what that really meant was that his girlfriend back home while he was on tour couldn't expect him to be faithful. He was promiscuous. You'll remember that the Beatles in 1967 to celebrate the, the first hookup of, uh, of TV networks right around the world. It was a simultaneous uh, broadcast right around the world. Uh, and the Beatles finished up the whole program by singing a song that they'd written for the occasion, All You Need Is Love. And they sang it over and over again. And it wasn't too many years later that they broke up in acrimony. They were suing each other so much for love. So what is love? Well, in verse 9, 
in this love was the love of God was made manifest. In other words, we, we've seen what love looks like. In this was the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So love is action. Love is a deed. In this case, it's a deed of giving. Love is generous. God sends his only son. Why? So that we might live through him so that we can have eternal life. And so verse 10, John goes on, well, if that's the kind of love that God has, then what must his people do? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So love has to be demonstrated. On God's behalf, it was demonstrated that he sent his only son. And Jesus was sent for the purpose of turning away God's anger from his human creation. That's what propitiation means. So Jesus came to bear God's wrath, to make it possible for our sins to be forgiven and so that God would look mercifully upon us, his anger having been turned aside. Now, as a result of that, in verse 11, there's another exhortation where John urges the people that he's writing to, beloved, he says, he loves these people, he wants the best for them. He says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He means if God loved us in that way by sending his son, what less can we do than love each other? Other people who've been purchased by Jesus' blood for God. Think about all the people sitting around you at the moment. Look around. Jesus paid the same price for them that he paid for you. God demonstrated his love in sending his son for them as he did for you. How can you do less than love the other objects of God's love. That's the logic that John's putting out here. Now he goes on in verse 12 as a test. He says, no one's ever seen God. That's true because God is spirit. But if we love one another, God abides in us. God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. He goes on, one of his great themes, so that we know things. First John is all about knowing, knowing that we have eternal life. So he says, by this we know that we abide, that we continue, that we remain in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son. Why? To be the saviour of the world. Now, if we were to ask John Shelby Spong, to, in what way is Jesus the saviour of the world? His answer will be, well, he set the world a good example. But the, the death of Jesus on the cross was an irrelevance to people like John Shelby Spong. Because according to them, nobody's done anything bad enough to need saving. Now, the Antichrists, according to chapter 1, verse 6, to the end of chapter 2, verse 2, pretty obviously claimed that they hadn't sinned. So for the Antichrist, Christ's propitiatory death on the cross was unnecessary. I've met people, uh, some of them who claim to be Christians, who say, I can't believe that I've done anything so bad that God's son had to die for me. Richard Niebuhr was an American theologian and he once wrote a book called The Kingdom of God in America where he was critical of the shape of Christianity as it had been shaped by the consumer culture of America. And he said the way some churches preach, you'd believe that the world, uh, that God is a God, uh, so they're preaching a God without wrath, brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. A God without wrath, 
brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is fatal error that he's describing there. It's this soft, um, hippie version of Jesus. It might be popular, but it's not true. And so John goes on, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. It's that public acknowledgement that Jesus is who he's, we've always claimed he is, who's, who's been taught to us from the beginning. And so as a result of that, that's a demonstration that we indeed know God. And so the truth and the love tests are combined here. Loving God, loving each other, is a demonstration that God lives in us by his spirit, that we've become his because Jesus died for us. And so that love becomes perfected in us and it causes us to be people who live lives free of fear because we know that we're ready for judgment day. And to be fearful means to be uncertain, to be full of doubt. We love, we're able to love each other because God first loved, first loved us. And so verse 20, as he comes to the end of this passage, John makes it very clear that anybody who says that they love God but lives in hatred of one of their fellow believers is in denial of the truth. That person is a liar, as big a liar as the Antichrists were earlier on in the letter. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't. The proof of our love for God needs to be borne out in our love for each other. And so John finishes in verse 21, this commandment we have from him, who from? From Jesus. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we've got to believe rightly about Jesus Christ, about his person and his work, who he is. He's the son of God, the promised Messiah. He's the one who laid down his life so that our sins could be forgiven. That's, that's who he is and what he does. That needs to lead to living lives of love, not just for God, who we can't see, but for our brothers and sisters who we can see. And when we do that, when we believe what's right and when we love wholeheartedly, that's obedience. Truth, love and obedience all need to intermingle as we respond to the wonderful good news of the Lord Jesus. Now, love for others is something that Jesus urged repeatedly. He commanded it. John 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How did Jesus love us? He died for us. So we need to live self-sacrificially for each other. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So there's truth and, and obedience combined. John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And then John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. Do you get the picture? Love for the family of faith, love for our church is not an option. It's a command, but it's a demonstration that we actually belong to God who is love, who demonstrated his love by giving. We need to demonstrate our love for God by giving to those who are part of his family. And this is a way that we can reassure ourselves that we really do belong to him. So Mafra Community Church, this passage today tells us that we need to test the spirits. We need to work out truth from error. We need to cling on to, hold on to the truth that's been taught from the beginning as recorded in the scriptures. We need to believe and to continue to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, sent to be the saviour of the world, the one who's overcome the world, and in whom we overcome the world and its error. 
that we need to give expression to that, visible, physical expression to that, practical expression as we love each other. Because God loved us, we need to love, not in words and talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, what sort of a church will be if we take these things to heart and keep them seriously? John Newton was, of course, a very famous uh, songwriter. He wrote Amazing Grace. He was a, a pastor of a church in England, a couple of churches in England. But uh, he's really left his mark on the history of Christianity by writing some extraordinary songs, including the, uh, the ageless Amazing Grace. But another one he wrote, um, is a good summary of what we've been looking at here. I'm not going to quote it all. It's got five verses, but the first and last verse go like this. It's called, What Think Ye of Christ? Of course, he wrote a long time ago, so the language is a little bit archaic, but nonetheless, the meaning is beautiful. He says, What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. That's the truth test. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy, mercy or wrath are your lot. Thinking rightly about Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do, will determine your destination on Judgment Day. Now, as he finishes, he goes through a range of different alternatives for what people think about Jesus. But this is what he says he thinks about Jesus, and I think it's a good guide for how we should think about him too. So verse 5, if asked what of Jesus I think, although my best thoughts are but poor, I say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my saviour from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord and my all. So what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of each other? Test the spirits, walk in the truth, and love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, please help us to be a church full of love for you and for each other. We thank you that you sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. We thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy. Uh, but we acknowledge also that you are a God who's a, a consuming fire. We ask that you would just make us daily grateful for your love and so want to walk in love for each other as a demonstration of our love for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be enjoying some of the sound effects that come from recording at school on a Friday afternoon, but uh, there we go. Look, uh, I'll look forward to seeing you at um, Greg and Kerry's at Valencia Creek on Cup Day. And uh, we're looking forward to a lovely time there. God bless you all. I'll see you soon.